A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. How are we doing today? Bright and lively morning. There's lots of stuff coming up. Thanks. Old Josh went downstairs with the kids, but lots of stuff. So uh, make sure you're checking your bulletins and go on the website uh, if you want to be part of any of those things. There's more information there, but love to have people involved with that stuff. The, the barn bash, one of the other cool things about it is uh, it's just one of the what, two or three times in the entire year that uh, the whole village family comes together for something. So, you, I mean, we look around this room, we're like, there's, there's so many of us here, but there's uh, other people that are part of Village Bible Church at all of our other uh, campuses, and so that's one of the events where we, as a whole church, come together. We rent out Blackberry Farm and uh, have a great time up in there, and all the activities are there. So uh, come, and you'll get a, a good sense of what Village is, is all about and kind of who we are uh, in a bigger context than even just the Indian Creek campus. So uh, love for you guys to be part of that stuff. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them up to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Uh, last week we started this new series, uh, Rediscover Church, and talked about the, the importance of church, and uh, we spent some time answering the very uh, kind of fundamental, for some of us maybe it felt very elementary, uh, question of what is a church, what, what even is a church, when we start talking about, uh, hey, I'm, I'm part of Village Bible Church, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean when we say that, that we're, we're members of a church? And so we spent some time last week talking about just many of the different pictures that the Bible uses to portray portray the church, and, and just the, the beauty of the fact that God has given us so many, right? So that as we step back and see them come together as the collage that they are, uh, it helps bring into clearer focus what exactly God has in mind for who we are, what we're all about. Um, we talked about the fact that as a church, as the church, we're centered around one person. It's not a charismatic pastor. It's not just a team of elders, or it's not even just about you. Uh, but as the church, we are centered around the person of Jesus Christ, to praise him, to worship him. Uh, we learn this from some of the pictures. He's the head of the church, that he uh, sees the church as his bride, that he has great affection for the church. Um, so we, we took time to acknowledge those things and to stop and recognize that church isn't just someplace we go or something we do, uh, but it's someone that we are. It's who we are. We are the church. The church is a people. Uh, but if you were here last week, as we talked about that, we started talking about the fact that there are two different churches, if you will, that we have to deal with. There's the visible church, or the church that's the kind of the theological term for it, uh, the church that we see and engage with. And then there's the invisible church, the church that only God sees it. And we said last week that just because you're part of one of those does not necessarily mean that you're part of the other. And this morning, I want us to take some time. We're going to kind of dive into that a little bit more. And we're going to ask another kind of fundamental question as it relates to the church. That is, who can belong to a church? Who can belong to the church? 
And that's where this idea of the visible, invisible is going to kind of come into that conversation a little bit more. Because uh, as we talked about, that visible church being someone we can see, uh, that we engage with, we here this morning are part of the visible church. Uh, We've all showed up, we're coming, and we're all in different places in our walk with the Lord. Some of us may not be even believers, but we've come and we're here and we say, hey, here's the the visible church. And within the, the visible church, We've got people that have different relationships with it. So, for example, uh, within the visible church, we we might see that there are some people who who we could call casual attenders of the church. These are people who, you know, they they show up, they're, they're here every now and then, but they're not all too altogether very committed to the church it's it's something that kind of if it's convenient we're going to be here stuff like that we some casual attenders we're not bashing on anybody or anything we're just recognizing the the different relationships then you might have some consistent attenders people are like hey i am here regularly like you see you see these faces you see these people we engage with them as the church gathers uh, you expect to see them uh, they would say hey this this local gathering perhaps is my home church and they're a little bit more involved. Third, you might say that there are uh, con- uh, really committed members, right? And these are, are people who, on the outside, we have a tendency to maybe look at it and say that they've got it, right? And they're the people that probably have a smile on every week. Uh, they're greeting you at the door. They're serving somewhere. If the church is doing anything, you're like, they're going to be there. Like, what would a church event be without so-and-so? You know, the, these committed members, kind of like the, the pillars of what we would say the visible church is. Like, uh, that's, that's kind of this thing that we, we ascribe to. We want to be like the, these committed members of the church. The question is, then who can be part of the church? Well, in one sense, from that visible church standpoint, each of those people doesn't matter whether you're a casual tender to a committed member. You can be part of the visible church. You're here, you showed up, we're professing faith in Jesus Christ, we're here. But in another sense, there's a very real possibility that none of those people actually belong to the church. It's easy for us to look and, and maybe... If we're really honest, and I know that we don't think this way because, you know, we're, we love the Lord and we describe the scriptures, and so we would never think this way. But if we're really honest, maybe sometimes we are tempted to look at somebody who is maybe more on that casual tenor side and say, they just haven't got it. Maybe they're not even a believer because they're not, they're not really sold out to this thing. On the other side of it, we might look at those committed members and be like, they surely, surely they have a great relationship with the Lord. It seems like they've got their lives together. It seems like they've got everything going for them. They seem joyful and happy all the time. They've got it figured out. But the reality is, is we just don't truly know each other's hearts. That's where last week we talked about, you know, John Calvin saying we need to be charitable in our understanding and interaction with each other. It's not like we're going around doubting one another. But when it comes to asking the question of who can belong to the church... It's an important question to ask. So I want to throw up on the screen, Zach, we've got our uh, working definition that we kind of closed out last week with, and and we're only going to kind of get into the first kind of phrase of it this morning, this working definition of the church. A church is a group. Okay, so we kind of dealt with that last week, a group. It's a a people. It's a gathering, right? Uh, First, uh, uh, Second Timothy you know, we are uh, a people now, God's people, and we spent some time talking about that. Uh, but now we're going to kind of jump to that next part of it, a group of Christians, 
a group of Christians. And this matters, right, as we talk about who can belong to the church. Because there are many people who profess to be Christians that on the outside, yes, we are all for it. But on the inside, we don't know their hearts. Some people may say that they're a Christian because I, that's how I grew up. Mom and dad, they, they're diehard Christians. There's a, one of my favorite comedians talks about how he grew up in the 90s and his parents were Christian. He says, that's about as Christian as it gets. Christian parents in the 90s. And so you know, some people may say, I'm a Christian because that's just how I was raised. My grandma's a Christian, so she took us to church. So uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Some people may uh, say that they're a Christian because, well, I was baptized as a kid. Some people may say they're a Christian because they go to church. Maybe they're even one of those committed ones that we talk about. Surely I'm a Christian. Some will say that they're a Christian because they, they at one point in time, they pray to prayer. Those things are fine and dandy, but they don't necessarily make you a Christian. Those things in and of themselves don't make you a Christian. What matters is if you're born again. Being born again as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one dark night, I don't know, I, I always kind of imagine it kind of cool, maybe like a fall evening, um, a dark night, early in Jesus' ministry, he was approached by one of the religious leaders of the day. You remember this? John chapter 3. A man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and Jesus, in this conversation with him, says, Truly I say to you, unless one is a committed member of their local church, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one pray to prayer, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, for some people, that's kind of a surprising statement. So for some, that starts to raise some questions. Well, what exactly does that entail? For Nicodemus, it was kind of a shocker. Jesus like, dude, you're a, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know what I'm talking about? And Nicodemus is like, well, I mean, I the math doesn't add up. How do you enter back into your mother's womb and you're born? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and Jesus gets in this conversation about what it means to be born again. That's what I want to spend some time talking about uh, this morning. And for some of us, uh, again, that's going to be an elementary, fundamental thing. You're, like, you're already maybe starting to check out just a little bit. Like, yeah, born again, got it, been there, done that. I understand what that means. But I want to invite you to come along with me in this. Because at the end, I'm going to kind of explain why this is so important for us at the very beginning of wor a working definition of the church to say that this matters. right? So bear with me as we work through this. Let's start with uh, kind of talking about what being born again doesn't mean. Because sometimes there's a whole lot of confusion about it. Even in today's day and age, just because we're not Nicodemus doesn't mean that we don't have questions or misconceptions about this. For instance, being born again is not just some standalone experience in our lives. It's something that happens once, but it has lasting effects for everything moving forward in your life from that point. For some, we look at it like, yeah, I was born again. And it's like, I checked that box off. I'm like, I'm good to go now. Like, the bucket list item is done. I checked that. Born again, done. Now I can move on to the other things uh, that I need to slash want to do with my life. That's not what being born again is all about. It changes you from that point moving forward. It holds bearing on every aspect of our lives. Secondly, being born again isn't just some optional thing. 
Right? We live in a world where the Oprah mantra kind of works that, hey, you know, we're, we're all people are on a similar journey. We're all climbing a mountain and we're all going to reach the same peak, but we've just got different paths. Jesus is one of those paths, you know, anything else that you want to fill in. It's just a different path to get to the same destination. And that is a lie, brothers and sisters, from the pit of hell. Because buying into that kind of teaching is going to land you in exactly that place. It's just not true. It's not that we're just on another path. Jesus says that he is the way. He says that he is the truth, that uh, he is the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. It is an exclusive thing. You come only through Jesus. Uh, John 1.12, the very beginning of that gospel, uh, John writes this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not those who rejected him, not those who denied him, not those who, who did nothing with Jesus, but to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's not an optional thing. Being born again is the way we enter into the family of God. Just like for, for many of us, we've got little kids. Our church has tons of little kids these days. They were born into your family. Children can be adopted into your family, but there is a change in which an entrance happens where you come into the family. It's a great picture, a reminder for us of even the spiritual reality. Being born again is not just some formula. It's not like we just follow some exact wording of a prayer and because we said something exactly this way, like, we're good. It's not some rite of passage that if you do all these things in this order, then, then you're good. You've been born again. Being born again is altogether something different. As a matter of fact, it's not even just something that you did. It's not something that you did. If your confidence and your salvation is in something other than the fact that Christ died for my sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and my complete and total faith and trust is in that alone, then maybe you should revisit your conversion experience. If your confidence starts with something like, because I, what, what exactly did you do? What exactly could you do? I think the scriptures tell us that our being born again has a whole lot more to do with God than it does with us. That's humbling. If we really sit and wrestle with that, it has a whole lot more to do with God than it does with us. That's why I want to invite you to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, if you were here in the spring, we, we taught all the way through this, but I want to take us back to this passage because I think it gives us a great picture of this as Paul's uh, speaking to them. So uh, if, you're, if you're new to Ephesians, you need a little refresher. Remember chapter 1, Paul is speaking to these uh, people in the church in Ephesus, and he is just gushing over the rich blessings that we have in Christ. He's like, I mean, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
And then he goes on from there and just starts absolutely gushing over all these rich blessings that we have in Christ. And you can almost just imagine Paul as he's working through this, like before you guys, but before you get so high on yourself, let's not forget where you came from and let's not forget how you got here. So Ephesians chapter 2, he jumps in. He says, And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't get too high on yourself. Remember where you came from. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so what Paul does is he gives in three short verses kind of synopsis, a a snapshot of the, the human condition apart from Christ. Outside of Jesus, this was our reality. And this is humbling for us because we have to stop and recognize that while it was our past, apart from Christ, it is still the reality for those who we know and we love who are currently outside of Christ. So he says, apart from Christ, verse 1 there, you're, you're nothing more than a corpse. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked. That's, that's strong language. That's very raw language. Because death is an ugly thing. It's a brutally ugly thing. It's a painful thing. It's one of those things that, that in our guts, there's just something about us that says, this just isn't right. It hurts. So when he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it means something. We're walking around like zombies. We have an appearance of life, but there's no life within us. And it's because this, death means something. It means separation, doesn't it? Does not death imply a level of separation? That's part of what makes death so painful. When our loved ones pass away and they're not with us anymore, it hurts. It hurts. There's a separation there. And what are you you supposed to do about that separation? It stings. It cuts to the core. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So when it comes to our lives spiritually, what Paul's saying is there is a separation, right? A separation between us and God. There's a separation that you and I can't do anything about because the second humbling, and, and I'm not trying to be morbid here at all, but the second humbling reality about death is somebody who is dead has no capability of doing anything. You were dead. What did you do to make yourself alive when you were dead? You had no power to do that. I had no power to make myself alive. Somebody else must make us alive. 
So to come out right off the bat here and be like, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. You were separated and alienated from God and you were completely without help and without hope to do anything about that deadness on your own. But you didn't really want to. I didn't really want to. The second part of you go into verse 2. He talks about this fact that not only were we a corpse, but we were, we were under control, right? So he talks about three areas where we lived our lives under control. Number one, we used to follow the course of this world. In other words, apart from Christ, it makes total sense for a person to be like the world. I don't know why sometimes as Christians we get so shocked when we see the world act like the world. It makes sense. We were like that. Paul says, we used to follow, if the world sold something, if the world advertised something, we were like, yeah. We bought into it. We were with it. We pursued the same ends. We wanted to achieve the same goals. We operated under the same ideologies. We used to follow the course of this world. And we were fine with it. That's just the path that we were on. Two, he says that we were under the influence of the devil. He talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And now some people uh, kind of think of the devil like he's around every corner and behind every little bush and you know, every little thing that goes wrong in life is that's the devil doing something. You know, that red light, which we don't have those in Shabana, but you, know, you go to town and you're like, that red light, and you're like, that's why I like Shabana. The devil's not in Shabana because there's no red lights to stop us and slow us down. There's no traffic but every little thing that goes wrong, the devil must have not wanted me to get to such and such a place. The devil's trying to, you know, really mess up my day. I'm not going to let him. Like he's the boogeyman behind every corner. Other people think of the, the devil like, they, here, I'm going to, Zach, I'm going to give you something to quote me on. We cartoonize the devil. We make him that little caricature that you see in, in movies and stuff, this little red dude with pitchforks and horns and a tail that sits on your shoulder and tries to get you to just do everything wrong. And in some ways, that just kind of becomes a, a place where we, we start to think of the devil like he's some sort of make-believe creature that maybe is just there to symbolize our own struggle with good and evil and, and you know, it's that, that wrestling between. He's not altogether real, altogether serious. But the Bible doesn't talk about him like that. We have victory over the devil. That's one of the, the, the great things about being in Christ. We can stand against his schemes, but the, the scriptures speak of him like he's a very real and very serious foe. That he was a powerful fallen angel who was cast out of heaven because he believed that he was strong enough and powerful enough to organize a coup against God and win. And evidently, a third of the angels in heaven believed he could pull it off. They were cast out of heaven. See, we're not just talking about some goofy little caricature. We're not just talking about uh, a little boogeyman that we just can't see. That, well, what's the real big deal? We used to follow his guidance. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. It's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Is a very real, very powerful spirit who hates God and hates you. He hates people. But I don't want to like toot his horn too much, right? Because then what happens is we start to think, oh, the devil, you know. The devil's not omnipresent. He's not all powerful. He isn't God. 
It's the reason that he got cast out of heaven and he isn't sitting on the throne of heaven. He isn't God. And we serve and follow the God who is victorious, the God who triumphs, the God who is going to just squash his head, right? Genesis 3.15. He'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Our Savior has crushed the head. There's victory. And so we, we are so thankful for that. But we used to follow the influences of the devil even in our own lives, and we were fine with it. Third, finally, and maybe the most ever-present influence, Paul says that we followed ourselves. We followed ourselves. Now, we, we tend to think, even of ourselves, we tend to think of people like we're just, we, people are generally good. I'm a generally good person. But apart from Christ, the Bible pulls back the curtain on the reality of the human condition. And he tells us, that we are a whole lot more messed up than we want to give ourselves credit for. A whole lot more messed up than we give ourselves credit for. So Paul here, before before it can be so easy to just start pointing the finger and say, see, it's the world's fault. See, it's the devil's fault that I was the way that I was. He says, hold on, dude. You had skin in the game. Because you followed your own passions You gave into your flesh, this is verse 3, you carried out the desires of your body, of your mind, and those very things landed you there. So you can't just point the finger, and that's what we like to do. All the way back to the garden, remember? Eve pointed the finger, Adam pointed the finger. There was a whole lot of finger pointing around. And we haven't so much graduated from that these days. We still like to point the finger. And Paul's saying, there is no finger to point except for back at yourself. We had skin in the game. See, at, at Village, we, uh, we hold to a doctrine that we call uh, total depravity. And, and there, that, that brings up different connotations and thoughts in people's minds. And, and basically what, what this means is this, that we, while we may not be as sinful as we could be, every single part of our lives, every aspect of who we are, is corrupted by our sin nature. Every aspect. That means if I can't rely on just one part of me to kind of over, rise above the rest and make me do all the good that's necessary, it's just not going to happen. A total depravity causes us to do what we ought not to do. It causes us to think what we ought not to think. It causes us to go where we ought not to go. It, it gets us into a world of hurt. So at the end of the day, as Paul says, here's these realities for you. In the end of verse 3, you were by, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, number one, you were a corpse. Number two, you were uh, controlled. Number three, you were condemned. We stood under the righteous and just condemnation of a just and holy God. Because each of us had sinned against him and rebelled against him. The scriptures say that None are good. No, not one. This is uh, Romans quoting the Psalms. And so therefore we deserve that judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. Not a a wrath like uncontrolled anger, like my three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum when he starts stomping his foot on the ground and screaming. That's not the, the wrath of God, but the wrath of God coming from a very sound and settled place of his nature. Who God is. That he is a perfect totally holy magnificent God 
Who is like our God? Who can ask him uh, where, about the creation of the world? He created it, not us. Who can stand before such a holy God? We were talking in, in small group this week about that, that song. Uh, I mean, I'm going to forget the name of the title of it again, but you know, where it's like, on that day, will I stand and sing your praises or will I, will I fall on my knees? Will I be able to speak at all? Three verses that paint a rather grim reality of our life outside of Christ. Three verses that tell us pretty straightforward that we were in a pretty helpless and pretty hopeless state apart from Christ. Why does this matter? Because when we talk about belonging to the church, it reminds us that something had to change. So verse 4, but God. Maybe two of the most wonderful words in the scriptures. This harsh reality, this, this bleak and hopeless reality, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But God... Right? This, this total change has happened. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, you followed the course of this world, but God, you followed the prince of the power of the air, but God, you followed your own passions and the impulses of your flesh and your mind, but God, you were a child of wrath, but God. It wasn't, but you, you figured it out, but you came to your senses and started to see. It was no. When you were dead and you were separated from God and could do nothing about it, God acted. God did. That's why I said a little bit ago that our conversion, our being born again, has a whole lot more to do with God than it does with us. Because what was I supposed to do to solve that problem? Nothing. So God stepped in and God made us alive when we were dead. He made us holy when we were impure. He gave us righteousness where we had all the stain and, and ugliness of sin. But God. So being born again, if you will, just to kind of put some words to it, is this, being regenerated by God. It's being regenerated by God and that He breathed life into our dead lungs. He made our dead hearts start beating again. He is the one who took our blind eyes and made us see. He is the one who made us alive together in Christ. You didn't make yourself alive. God did that. God gave you life, which then allows us to come to a place where we repent of our sins. And repentance has this uh, meaning of a change of heart, a change of mind, and, when, and where we were, we were headed in one direction, doing one thing, and it's like you pull a U-turn, and, and there's a change that takes place. 
It's a very necessary thing. You know, you talk about Acts 17.30, which says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, that seems like a pretty exhaustive list of people, to repent. So it's coming to a place where we look, at, we look at where we are because God has opened our eyes and breathed life into our lungs as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it was me. And I couldn't do anything about it but God. It's the, I'm taking the old self, and this is over in Ephesians 4, I'm taking the old self and putting it off, and I'm putting on the new self in Christ. We've been changed, we've been transformed in Him. But this repentance, it involves something, uh, I'm going to say just a, there's a nuance to it here, where it also involves us receiving Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Because right? I'm sure maybe you've had the conversations too. I've talked with people who, uh, they're, they're not born again, they, aren't, they don't claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and they're the first people to tell you, I ain't perfect, and I'm probably going to hell. I don't know how facetious they're being when they say that. But what are we doing with Jesus? But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right to be called children of God. It's one thing to say, I'm not perfect. I probably deserve, deserve to go to hell for that. It's another thing to say, but I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I trust in what he has done that in his shed blood I have the forgiveness of all my sins. I have redemption through him. And I have life because I, I remember that Jesus rose from the grave. That he didn't stay dead. He conquered death. And that means something. So we receive Jesus as our Lord. Finally, it gives us an opportunity to rest in the grace of God. This is verses 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved. I mean, we probably have this on, on pictures in our homes, or you've got this verse memorized. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, right? We rest in the grace of God that we did not deserve this. If you go back to 1 Peter, one of the things that, that always just blows my mind is when Peter says that, listen, the angels long to look into this salvation. Isn't that something? We get to rest in the finished work of Christ. I loved uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, talking about the rest of God. That's in God's. He says, So then uh, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. According to a few verses before that, that very disobedience was rejecting the good news without faith. So we strive to enter that rest. It's not by going to church all the time, doing all the right things, the striving into that rest is to come by faith and to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, then we respond in grateful service. This is verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. And we so often jumble up the order of these verses. Because when we deal with people who are outside the church, we have such a tendency at times to say, yes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're, we're cool with one through, verses 1 through 3. And it's like something weird happens for us when we start to take verse 10 and we put it before verse 4. And we say, but get those good works in line. Start fixing up your life. Put your life together. Start acting right. Make the right decisions. Have the right priorities. When what? People are dead. What good's that going to be? We need the but God first. But God did something in their hearts. But God changed them. So why, why does this matter so much to the church? Why does this matter so much when we're talking about the church? I mean, after all, if, it, if what we are saying here is true, that it's not us that gives life, it's not us that just makes all the right decisions and kind of comes to our senses on things, why does this matter? Because it sure seems that if being born again really does have more to do with God than it does with us, then that's a little bit outside our pay grade, isn't it? Like maybe what we should just worry about is getting people to come to church. Say, hey, why don't you come to church? Why don't you get really involved in our church? And we're going to just, we can, we can do that. But God, he's gonna, we'll trust that through that, God's going to get a hold of someone's life, and then he'll do the but God thing. We'll just get him in church. Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. Number one, if this is not important, then it's going to impact our message. It's going to impact our message. See, our message is not try harder. Our message is not pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Our message is not simply to just come to church. That'll make your life better. How many people have just come to church and their life still seems to struggle and they're like, it just didn't work. Christianity didn't work for me. You didn't even taste Christianity. Our message 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, writing to that church, he says, let me remind you. Let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And he says this, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, the message that I declared to you is that Jesus came and he died. Why? Not to just give us a little tune-up, but to deal with sin. And he came and he was buried. He died and was buried, but he rose again. And there were people who saw the resurrected Christ. There were eyewitnesses to this thing. That's the good news that Jesus has triumphed over the grave. The good news isn't show up to church. Try a little harder. The good news involves Christ. What would we do with Jesus? So we don't preach to people. Just come and join this community of people that gather here in 209 Nagoma Street in Shavana. 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, just show up. We preach a message that we need a but God moment. But God. And we all get to be ambassadors for that. 
We all, it's not just the pastor's job. It's not just uh, the, the small group leader's job. It's not just the, the people who are serving's job. That's, that's an us job. That as we go out, we're involved with that. Uh, we're told in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we have been reconciled with Christ, right? And that we have now been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we carry a message on behalf of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So he says what? We implore you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's this ministry that we have been welcomed into. The ministry that we have been entrusted with is not something to go bury in the corner of the church and say, we've got something over here. It's a ministry that says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So if this doesn't matter, this being born again doesn't matter, and, and all that really matters, hey, just come on and be part of church, it's going to totally change the message that we preach. Which in turn is going to totally impact our mission. Our mission. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples were what? In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, the mission of Village Bible Church Indian Creek is not so that we can just fill up more seats. The mission of the church is not so that we can moralize our community and our nation. The mission of our church isn't to just come and get together and give you a little bit of a pep talk before you go back to work tomorrow. A little fill me up to get you through the week. The mission of our church is to make disciples, to teach people and equip people to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're here to evangelize the lost, we're here to equip the saints. Because if all this doesn't matter, then a church is almost nothing more than just a community center. A place where we hold events, we do gatherings, maybe even we just try to nudge people in the right direction. But we are called as a church to be a hospital for the sick, to be boot camp for Christian soldiers, to train and equip and say that God has called us to something. Let's do this thing together. Finally, if none of this matters, it's going to impact our ministry. Because those who call themselves, those of us who call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, are saying with our mouths that we have been changed. We have been made new. And we are called to then come alongside and offer support, care, accountability, just come alongside and do life together. That's one of the things about this whole series that we really hope kind of strikes a chord, is that church isn't just about doing it on your own. Church isn't about just showing up for a little bit and then fighting your battles solo. It's we have been given brothers and sisters to come alongside each other, 
So as we do ministry, you know, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 5, he's like, I'm not talking, you know, he's, he's, he's coming after them a little bit about their engagement with sin. He's like, I'm not talking about the, dealing with sin outside the church. It's, it's about those who call themselves brothers. It means something within the church. So if this transformation, this change, this being born again doesn't matter, then there's not a whole lot of reason to, to call each other to some sort of holiness and righteousness in Christ. Then it is just a, you know, do your thing, man. I don't But this gives us grounds to say, hey, God's called us to something. I'm going to help you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to serve you, and guess what? You're going to have to do all those things for me too because I ain't perfect. We're going to follow Jesus. Not just get our checkbox that says we're good and we're not going to hell, but we're going to honor him with our lives in worship. So here at Village, we say that our mission is this. This is kind of our mission statement. is to discover, develop, and deploy disciples for Jesus Christ. That we discover disciples through the missions and outreach ministries of our churches. We go out into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do that here in our local communities. We do that all around the world with our missionary partners. And even those of us who don't have the opportunity to go out into the world and do that ourselves, we, there are plenty of opportunities, like Josh said, to help support the missions that takes place through our church. Two, we develop disciples in our worship of God through prayer, through the teaching of the word, and through the fellowship of the saints. This is one of those times where we say, we're, we do this to equip the saints. We do small groups to equip the saints. We do a theology class that we'll start up to equip the saints, to develop disciples for Jesus Christ. To say, we want to put the tools in our hands, the, the, the support structures around us to do what God has called us to do. And finally, we strive to deploy disciples in the service of God. For some people, that's been answering the call to, to go into vocational ministry. For other people, that's been answering the call to go to the mission field. Just last year, Village sent out two new missionaries. What an awesome blessing as a church to get to do that. And for some, it's saying, hey, what are the gifts that God has given you, and how can we deploy you here in our local context to use those gifts for the glory of God? But you know what's inherent in that mission statement? Is the belief that when somebody is born again, that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of a new life in Christ. Thank you.